May you never be kidnapped at sea. But if you are, may Annika the Goat Lady be there. Because goats! Hi, and welcome to Sex and Whiskey. I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media, and we are here today to talk about Heaven and Earth, the 10th episode of Season 3. Heaven and Earth aired on November 19th, 2017, and was written by newcomer Luke Shellhaas and directed by David Moore, who also directed last week's episode, The Doldrums. All right, now, before I get started talking about Heaven and Earth, I'm going to quickly say something I have said many times before, just not yet on sex and whiskey. It's an important point, and I think now is a good time to make it. In a street fight between the critic and the creator, the creator wins, hands down, every day, twice on Sundays. Good criticism, righteous criticism, is about appreciating everything a piece of art has to offer, finding triumphs in work you don't particularly like, and being honest about the failures in work that you love with your whole heart. All that said, I'm about to share some tough criticism with you guys, and while I do that, I want to remind everyone that when a person creates something, they are giving everyone who experiences that creation a gift, and they are putting themselves in an extremely vulnerable space in order to do it, and they deserve our respect and our gratitude. The critic risks almost nothing, and the creator risks all. So as far as I'm concerned, the creator wins, hands down, every time. All right. Let's go through the stones. I have my wife. In Heaven and Earth, Jamie protests as Claire is being kidnapped by the British man of war, and Reigns has him thrown in the hole. I'm well acquainted with the inside of a cell, Fergus. Meanwhile, Claire gets to work trying to save the men aboard the porpoise, even as the healthy men grumble about her methods. The men won't like it. Or would they prefer to die? On the Artemis, Jamie tries to get Fergus to break him out so he can mutiny and take over the ship from Reigns and chase Claire. But Fergus refuses because he has, what is it called? Oh yes, basic common sense. Mutiny. Can't work, me lord. The crew did not yours. They will not follow you. As Jamie berates Fergus to try to get him to do an incredibly stupid thing, Claire makes friends on the porpoise. One is her assistant, young Elias Pound, and the other is Mistress Johansson, the keeper of the goats. Oh, what said you? Jamie's cruelty and stupidity continue to confound both Fergus and Marsley, as Claire discovers someone on the ship told Captain Leonard who Jamie is. She finds the man who attacked young Ian in the print shop, who openly tells her everything and then begs her to kill him. Instead, she has him put in the hold. Yeah, no, I wouldn't get too close to Howard if I were you. Not unless you want to catch the disease. He actually is the source. Elias Pound succumbs to the disease, and it is very sad for a few minutes, but then they go to land and get grass for the goats, and Claire tries to escape to try to find some way to warn Jamie, but Captain Leonard stops her but I cannot let you warn your husband. On the Artemis, Marsily gets Jamie freed by making him give his word that he won't mutiny, while on the porpoise, Annika Johansson convinces Claire to jump overboard and save her husband. Jesus, I choose about Christ. Look, television is a job of work. It's not just writing, it's logistics, it's set design, it's sound, lights, acting, post-production, promotion, directing. The people behind every television show are dedicated, hard-working people, and I know that's true because if they weren't, the show would not exist. 
Keep that in mind, along with everything that I said at the top of the show about creators and critics, because I can't talk about this episode without coming down on it pretty hard, and it gives me no joy. No one roots for these guys more than I do. I want this show to be good, and often it is. But my job here is to honestly assess the episode, and my honest assessment is it's got some serious problems. Maybe some of you disagree. Maybe some of you love it. Yes, if you do, then please love this episode enough to make up for how much I really super hate this episode. Okay, have I disclaimed enough? Then let's hit it. The thing about writing good characters is that they have to be consistent in their behavior. This doesn't mean that they can't ever change. The best characters do change. This is what's called a character arc, when a character is put under enough pressure that their view of the world begins to change, and their behavior changes as well. A character arc is motivated change. It happens slowly, and if it's for the good, like with Sawyer on Lost, we cheer. And if it's a turn into darkness, like Wesley on Angel, we root for him to come back, although a darkly turned character can never entirely come back. They've looked into the abyss, and the abyss has looked back into them, and a bit of that darkness will always be with them. That's what makes a dark arc so wonderful. It helps us understand our own darkness and our own potential redemption. This is what I was hoping we were doing with Jamie this season when I was talking about the difference between a dark Jamie arc versus an asshole Jamie character break. A character break is just what it sounds like, a character behaving in a way that is antithetical to everything he was before, usually for the purpose of a plot mechanic or sometimes even just for a joke. And then like a rubber band, he snaps back into himself as soon as the story need is met. No consequences, no acknowledgement that anything was ever wrong in the first place. It's the narrative equivalent of gaslighting, and it happens all the time, unfortunately. In Heaven and Earth, we are seeing character breaks in all of our major characters, to such an extent that they are almost unrecognizable at some points. Let's start off with the worst offender of all. James Alexander Malcolm Mackenzie Fraser. Are you, you damn fool? I see I was right to withhold my blessing from you. Prove you that I can would love this. You do not mean that, Milon. How can you say that? Look, even at his worst moments, and Jamie has had some very, very bad moments this season, Jamie has always been at least two things, smart and caring when it comes to his people. In this episode, we take both of those things away from him. Let's address smart first. A mutiny? Seriously? So he can take over a ship that doesn't have the speed to catch up to the porpoise, nor the firepower to defeat it even if he could overtake it? Especially when he, at that point, thinks that he and Claire are going to be meeting up in Jamaica, as Captain Leonard promised. How in the world does he think that this idea will help Anyone, least of all young Ian, whose rescue is supposedly the motivation behind this insane adventure in the first place. Just maybe an hour before in the timeline of the story, when Jamie was anticipating his being pressed into service, he made Claire promise that she would continue on to Jamaica and rescue young Ian, keeping to the story focus. Now I know, having your wife kidnapped is going to be worrisome, and if Jamie had any shot in hell of rescuing her, I'd still think it was a stupid idea, but at least I'd understand. But his plan will only get him, Fergus, Marsley, and his other men killed. And you know what you can't do when you're dead, Jamie? Save Claire. So being stupid is the first character break, but then the way he speaks to Fergus, so cold, so cruel, that's not Jamie. That's not dark Jamie. That's not even asshole Jamie. 
This is Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Jamie. This isn't how he speaks to the people he loves, ever. I don't care what kind of duress he's under. And then, to add incomprehensibility to injury, he gives this speech. Because if you did, you would move heaven and earth. You would risk arrest and death. Even hell. You would do it as easily as prick of a pin. It set me free from this cell. Help me rescue the woman I love from her kidnappers. Tell you risk all you kind of speak of love. That is terrible. This is an attempt to mimic one of Jamie's fine speeches without an understanding of who the character is, how he thinks, or how he speaks. Jamie isn't some deluded middle schooler when it comes to the love between him and Claire. He doesn't proclaim, he doesn't grandstand, and he doesn't whine and rend his clothing when they're apart and or in danger. They're apart and or in danger like 90% of the time. He'd be perpetually naked if he did that. And here I will pause while all you hooligans release a wistful sigh over that thought. All right, so back on this planet, we have Jamie not just being stupid, not just cruel, but also dickishly manipulative, like when he does this. Get me those keys. Help me break free and I will give you my blessing to marry Marsley. Now here's the thing about Jamie's blessing. Wasn't it supposed to be about Marsley's honor and keeping her safe with a little side order of not getting killed by Leary if and when he ever returns to Lallybrock? Okay, so let's just say it was about protecting Marsley from a dangerous life with Fergus and the rest of the Merry Pranksters. Now, because Jamie's not getting what he wants from Fergus, he's using his blessing as a leverage to control and manipulate Fergus, and I guess he no longer cares about what's best for Marsley. And let's not forget, Jamie's blessing is a thing Fergus doesn't need because Fergus is a grown-ass man and can marry whoever he wants. Jamie's blessing is something that Fergus desperately wants because he loves and respects Jamie. And Jamie is using that love and respect to get Fergus to do something willfully stupid that will, in the end, get them all super killed. The bottom line is this whining, manipulative, pre-adolescent asshole is not Jamie. I don't know who he is, but he's not Jamie. This goes beyond a character break. This is a body snatcher scenario. And the only thing I can hope for is that next week we resurrect something resembling Jamie, retcon this stuff out of the canon, and just never speak of it again. Typhoid fever is spread by hand or, or food contaminated by infected urine or feces. Then we'll all die if you hadn't noticed. There's shite everywhere. Thankfully, Mr. Jones. Most of this is vomit. From weird dialogue to choices that are drastically out of character, the Claire we get in Heaven and Earth is, to engage in understatement, wildly inconsistent. When she's tending to the sick, cleaning up the place, and talking with sweet doomed Elias, it's okay. But the rest of the time? And what do you think will happen if I tell him you tried to violate me on his dining table? I did no such thing. Honey, who do you think he'll believe? He'll have you arrested so quick your head will spin. Let's see, she recklessly breaks into the captain's office to go through his books rather than setting up, I don't know, an invitation into his office and then sending him off for a moment so she can snoop. She goes through his books to find news of the Ruha on what turns out to be a wild goose chase, but during that chase she discovers that Captain Leonard knows who Jamie is because of a ship's mate named Harry Tompkins. Then she's caught by the antagonistic cook and she threatens to lie about him trying to rape her to get him to not tell on her. Yeah, no. This is a preposterously dumb plan. Her simple claim, who do you think the captain will believe, is beyond naive. 
The cook is a man, first of all, and a person the captain has known personally for much longer than he's known Claire, so I think this guy would probably roll those dice. Claire is a lot of things. Naive is not one of them. But moreover, as someone who has been threatened with rape about a million times, in a time period in which women are not valued and not believed, you would think she would come up with something, anything, other than this. First, because if he did rape her, I'm not sure those guys would believe her or care. And second, because this guy is the only cook they have and they need a cook. They're not going to throw him in the hold or toss him overboard for raping the surgeon. So there aren't going to be serious consequences even if she does scream rape. And he can still talk if she does. Claire is not stupid. She wouldn't have gotten into this situation in the first place, but once there, she would have found literally any other way to secure her safety by bartering for something he wants or needs, the goat's cheese, the alcohol, a promise to secure him a healthy man to help him cook, goddamn, anything. Then she uses another false claim, this time about the disease plaguing the ship, to get Harry Tompkins brought to her. There are what, 140 men on this ship? She could subtly ask around and find the man without spreading false information about a disease she's actively trying to fight. Okay, whatever with that. Next, we get this confounding fever dream of a scene with Tompkins in which she's going to kill him because why? He's already done the damage. He's already told the captain. How does finding him and getting this information from him help her at all? Why did she even try to find him? It would be one thing if he just ended up in her care because he was sick, but what? Why? How? Huh? And then she lies about him being a carrier of the disease and has him locked up in the hold with the actual carrier of the disease, thus violating that Hippocratic oath she seemed so fond of up until now, all because he's going to what? Tattle on her husband? He already did that, Claire. Then we get her trying to escape and bumping into Captain Leonard in the middle of a wide open field. So what, you go through the stones and you lose your peripheral vision? Is this part of the world building now? When confronted, she artlessly and directly asks Leonard to look the other way with Jamie. No offers, no trades, nor or I'll stop caring for your sick men, which would also be out of character for her to actually do, but at least it wouldn't be so fucking artless. And our final moment of WTF Claire is when Annika Johansson tells her to jump off the ship, and Claire freaks out and backs away, and has to be encouraged by the goat lady to be bold. What? What? This woman was a World War II nurse and has sawed limbs off conscious men with nothing more than a dull blade and a bottle of whiskey. She has faced down both Dougal and Colin McKenzie, Father Bain, and crazed zealots at a witch trial. Bitch has traveled 200 years through time, not once, not twice, but three times. And you want me to believe that when Land is in sight and she thinks it might save Jamie's life, she's going to hesitate at a high dive? What I do know is that Claire is not this reckless, not this cruel, and definitely not at all averse to taking whatever action is necessary to get the job done. And she is not the only one whose character has been warped by the funhouse mirror that is this episode. We must wait until we're married. I promise me, Lord. And that brings us to Fergus and Marsley, two characters who are not out of character so much as out of the story they were supposed to be in. Imagine what would happen to, say, Anne of Green Gables if you put her in a zombie story. Or Walter White if you put him in a Disney film. Those characters would look around, say, where the fuck am I and what the fuck is happening? And then just, you know, play it out. The look on Fergus's face when Jamie goes off on his petulant rant about true love is basically the facial expression equivalent of who are you and what did you do with Malor? And Fergus seems stunned, not only by what Jamie is asking him to do, but by the fact that he's not just jumping up to do it. He always does what Jamie asks because Jamie is always, or has always been anyway, connected to reality. 
Fergus seems to know that this whiny pissant isn't Jamie, and he's just biding his time until Jamie recovers whatever is left of his mind and starts to make sense again. And then we have Fergus and Marsley in their cabin, married by custom and able to consummate that marriage and thus no longer require Jamie's approval. Not to mention, Jamie's lost every last one of his damn marbles, so whatever. But here, with his one true offering it up on a platter, Fergus says no, not until we're married. Except by custom, they are married. So why is Fergus saying no? Because Jamie. Well, okay, fine. And then we get this piece of random and unsupportable insight from Marsley. You're just like him, you know, stubborn. Why don't you give your word to never break it? And that's where Marsley, our smart, perceptive, badass Marsley, goes off the deep end because of all the things she may be thinking about Jamie right now, that he's a man who keeps his word is most definitely not one of them. Do we not remember this from like 12 seconds ago? You left my mother for this English whore, making her a laughingstock and you say it's no my concern. Look, even the best version of Jamie has never been a terribly honor-bound guy. He did his best, but when necessary, he lied and stole and did what he had to to meet his primary objective, which I guarantee you was never to maintain his honor. And it wasn't something he particularly required of others either. So what you're saying, Marsley, is that this guy, Jamie, is bound by his word. Jamie, who has lied to and manipulated everyone, including Claire. We're trusting the outlaw, the spy, the smuggler, the seditionist to be so into his honor that if he gives his word, he will never break it. Really? This guy? Have you forgotten about all the deceptions we've colluded in? Yeah, we lied our way through Paris, did we not? Did we not just lie to Ian about where you've been for the past 20 years? This is the difference between demonstrated qualities and informed qualities. If you write a character who says he loves dogs, that's informed. The character has told us this is true, and we may or may not accept it as truth. But if you write a character who kicks dogs, that's demonstrated. We've seen the truth. We know this guy, and no matter what he says, he's an asshole who kicks dogs. This, we believe firmly, because it's been shown. And then there's gaslighted qualities. When you inform us of something while showing us the exact opposite and expect us to believe the informed quality over what we've actually seen in action. Like saying that Jamie always keeps his word when demonstrably that is not true. Sometimes, sometimes he keeps his word if it doesn't conflict with other goals. And you know what? That's not a bad thing. Stubbornly keeping your word about everything just because it's your word is not always the smartest play. And up until this episode, Jamie was always at least smart. So the fever dream continues when Captain Rains, on the word of a woman he thought should be bare-breasted on the trip to calm the seas, decides to let Jamie loose because Marsley says that Jamie's word, once given, is inviolable. Marsley. Marsley, the recently scorned Leary's daughter, makes this claim about Jamie. Has she, has she met Jamie? Lady doctor giving me orders. What was that? Nothing, sir. It's captain's orders, Jones. You're to do as the doctor says and pay her every respect. Yes, sir. I'm going to end on a positive note here because not everything in this episode was hateable. I do this not because I subscribe to the tenet of if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. I actively do not subscribe to that idea. I think it's a festering boil on the butt of American societal thought that has been used specifically to shut women up throughout the span of time. So, you know, 
Screw that shit. I'm ending with positive because I love this show and the people who make it, and I take no joy in the hating. One positive note is the acting. Everybody dispatched of this insanity to the best of their abilities, which were pretty damn good. Our band of regulars are true professionals, and I liked the actors who played Elias Pound, Jones, and Annika Johansson. I also liked the writing for these three. They felt understandable and consistent to me, and I thought they were pretty good. Annika was a bit broadly drawn, but hell, at this point, I don't care. I'll take it. At least she was smart and consistent. I liked Claire's taking Elias Pound under her wing and teaching him. I liked how strong and brave Elias was. His death and Claire's loss was kind of lost in the shuffle of insanity, but it was good. Aside from the whole stitch through the nose thing, which was an actual thing. I looked it up, so you don't have to, but it felt wholly unnecessary as a demonstration of the friendship and affection between Claire and Elias. We had that. All right, wait, we're ending on good notes. I like the goats. <laughs> All right, that'll do it for today. This episode of Sex and Whiskey was brought to you by Sarah, who supports Chipperish Media at the power producer level, and as a reward, gets to produce whatever show she wants. Thank you, Sarah, and thank you to everyone who supports Chipperish Media and makes all of this possible. Visit patreon.com chipperish to find out how you, too, can become a sex and whiskey producer. Then join me Sunday, November 26th at 8 p.m. Eastern using the hashtag SawChip for a live tweet of the broadcast on Stars. And I'll see you right afterward with my thoughts on Season 3, Episode 11, Uncharted. Slanjava. Sex and Whiskey is a Chipperish Media production and is entirely funded by passionate story lovers like you. Visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out how you can become a Chipperish Media supporter.